Chapter One of the Life of Thomas Lord Cochrane, Tenth Earl of Dundonald, completing the Autobiography of a Seaman, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. The Life of Thomas Lord Cochrane, Tenth Earl of Dundonald, Volume One by henry richard foxbourne chapter one seventeen seventy five to eighteen fourteen thomas lord cochrane tenth earl of dundonald was born at ansfield in lanark on the fourteenth of december seventeen seventy five and died in london on the thirty first of october eighteen sixty shortly before his death he wrote two volumes styled the autobiography of a seaman which set forth his history down to 1814, the fortieth year of his age. To these volumes the present work, recounting his career, during the ensuing six and forty years, is intended to serve as a sequel. Before entering upon the later narrative, however, it will be necessary briefly to recapitulate the incidents that have already been detailed. The Earl of Dundonald was descended from a long line of knights and barons, chiefly resident in Renfrew and Eyre, many of whom were men of mark in Scottish history during the 13th and following centuries. Robert Cochrane was the especial favourite and foremost counsellor of James III, who made him Earl of Mar. But the favours heaped upon him, and perhaps a certain arrogance in the use of those favours, led to so much opposition from his peers and rivals that he was assassinated by them in 1480. Footnote. Pinkerton, the historian, gives some curious details, illustrating not only Robert Cochrane's character, but also the condition of government and society in Scotland four centuries ago. The Scottish army, he says, amounting to 50,000, had crowded to the royal banner at Boroughmuir, near Edinburgh, whence they marched to Santray and to Lauder, at which place they encamped between the church and the village. Cochrane, Earl of Mar, conducted the artillery. On the morning after their arrival at Lauder, the peers assembled in a secret council in the church and deliberated upon their designs of revenge. Cochrane, ignorant of their designs, left the royal presence to proceed to the council. The earl was attended by three hundred men, armed with light battle-axes and distinguished by his livery of white with black fillets. He was clothed in a riding-cloak of black velvet and wore a large chain of gold around his neck. His horn of the chase or of battle was adorned with gold and precious stones, and his helmet, overlaid with the same valuable metal, was borne before him. Approaching the door of the church, he commanded an attendant to knock with authority, and Sir Robert Douglas, of Lochleven, who guarded the passage, inquiring the name, was answered, "'Tis I, the Earl of Mar." Cochrane and some of his friends were admitted. Angus advanced to him, and, pulling the gold chain from his neck, said, "'A rope will become thee better,' while Douglas of Lochleven seized his hunting-horn, declaring that he had been too long a hunter of mischief. Rather astonished than alarmed, Cochrane said, "'My lords, is it jest or earnest?' To which they replied, "'It is good earnest, and so thou shalt find it, for thou and thy accomplices have too long abused our prince's favour, but no longer expect such advantage, for thou and thy followers shall now reap the deserved reward.' Having secured Mar, the lords dispatched some men-at-arms to the king's pavilion, conducted by two or three moderate leaders, who amused James, while their followers seized the favourites. Sir William Roger and others were instantly hanged over the bridge at Lauder. Cochrane was now brought out, his hands bound with a rope, and thus conducted to the bridge, 
and hanged above his fellows. Footnote ends. Later scions of the family prospered, and in 1641 Sir William Cochrane was raised to the peerage as Lord Cochrane of Cowden by Charles I. For his adherence to the royal cause, this nobleman was fined £5,000 by the Long Parliament in 1654, and in recompense for his loyalty he was made First Earl of Dundonald by Charles II in 1668. His successors were faithful to the Stuarts, and thereby they suffered heavily. Archibald, the ninth Earl, inheriting a patrimony much reduced by the loyalty and zeal of his ancestors, spent it all in the scientific pursuits to which he devoted himself, and in which he was the friendly rival of Watt, Priestley, Cavendish, and other leading chemists and mechanicians of two or three generations ago. His eldest son, heir to little more than a famous name and a chivalrous and enterprising disposition, had to fight his own way in the world. Lord Cochrane, as the subject of these memoirs was styled in courtesy until his accession to the peerage in 1831, was intended by his father for the army, in which he received a captain's commission, but his own predilections were in favour of a seaman's life, and accordingly, after brief schooling, he joined the Hind as a midshipman in June 1793, when he was nearly 18 years of age. During the next seven years he learned his craft in various ships and seas, being helped in many ways by his uncle, the Honourable Alexander Cochrane, but profiting most by his own ready wit and hearty love of his profession. Having been promoted to the rank of lieutenant in 1794, he was made commander of the Speedy early in 1800. This little sloop, not larger than a coasting brig, but crowded with 84 men and 6 officers, seemed to be intended only for playing at war. Her whole armament consisted of 14 four-pounders. When her new commander tried to add to these a couple of 12-pounders, the deck proved too small and the timbers too weak for them, and they had to be returned. So Lilliputian was his cabin that, to shave himself, Lord Cochrane was obliged to thrust his head out of the skylight and make a dressing-table of the quarter-deck. Yet the speedy, ably commanded, was quite large enough to be of good service. Cruising in her along the Spanish coast, Lord Cochrane succeeded in capturing many gunboats and merchantmen, and the enemy soon learnt to regard her with especial dread. On one memorable occasion, the 6th of May, 1801, he fell in with the Garmo, a Spanish frigate, furnished with six times as many men as were in the Speedy, and with seven times her weight of shot. Lord Cochrane, boldly advancing, locked his little craft in the enemy's rigging. It was, in miniature, a contest as unequal as that by which Sir Francis Drake and his fellows overcame the great Armada of Spain in 1588, and with like result. The heavy shot of the Garmo riddled the speedy sails, but, passing overhead, did no mischief to her hulk or her men. During an hour there was desperate fighting with small arms, and twice the Spaniards tried in vain to board their sturdy little foe. Lord Cochrane then determined to meet them on their own deck, and the daring project was facilitated by one of the smart expedients in which he was never wanting. Before going into action, knowing, as he said, that the final struggle would be a desperate one, and calculating on the superstitious wonder which forms an element in the Spanish character, he had ordered his crew to blacken their faces, and with this and the excitement of combat, more ferocious-looking objects could scarcely be imagined. With these men following him, he promptly gained the frigate's deck, and then their strong arms and hideous faces soon frightened the Spaniards into submission. The senior officer of the Garmo asked for a certificate of his bravery and received one, testifying that he had conducted himself like a true Spaniard. To Spain, of course, this was no sarcasm, and on the strength of the document its holder soon obtained further promotion. 
that achievement which cost only three men's lives led to consequences greater than could have been expected lord cochrane after three months waiting received the rank of post-captain but his desire that the services of lieutenant parker his second in command should also be recompensed led to a correspondence with earl st vincent which turned him from a jealous superior into a bitter enemy in reply to lord cochrane's recommendation earl st vincent alleged that it was unusual to promote two officers for such a service besides the small number of men killed on board the speedy did not warrant the application lord cochrane answered with incautious honesty that his lordship's reasons for not promoting lieutenant parker because there were only three men killed on board the speedy were in opposition to his lordship's own promotion to an oldham as well as that of his flag captain to knighthood and his other officers to increased rank and honours for that in the battle from which his lordship derived his title there was only one man killed on board his own flagship that was language too plain to be forgiven in july eighteen o one the speedy was captured by three french liner battleships whose senior in command captain pallier declined to accept the sword of an officer who had as he said for so many hours struggled against impossibility and asked lord cochrane though a prisoner still to wear it he however was refused employment as a commander of another ship thereupon with characteristic energy he devoted his forced leisure from professional pursuits to a year of student life at edinburgh where in eighteen o two lord palmerston was his class fellow under professor dugald stuart this occupation however was disturbed by the renewal of war with france in eighteen o three lord cochrane though with difficulty then obtained permission to return to active service the arab one of the craziest little ships in the navy being assigned to him on his representing that she was too rotten for use off the french coast he was ordered to employ her in cruising in the north sea and protecting the fisheries northeast of the orkneys where as he said no vessel fished and consequently there were no fisheries to protect this ignominious work lasted for a year it was brought to a close in december eighteen o four soon after the appointment of lord melville in succession to earl st vincent as first lord of the admiralty by him lord cochrane was transferred from the arab to the palace a new and smart frigate of thirty-two guns and allowed to use her in a famous cruise of prize-taking among the azores and off the coast of portugal this was followed in eighteen o six by further work in the same frigate the closing portion of which was especially memorable being off the basque roads at the end of april he fixed his attention upon a frigate the minerve and three brigs forming an important part of the french squadron in the mediterranean after three weeks waiting on the fourteenth of may he saw the frigate and the brigs approaching him and promptly prepared to attack them he was not deterred by knowing that the minerve alone carrying forty guns was far stronger than the ballast which had also to withstand the force of the three brigs each with sixteen guns and to be prepared for fire from the batteries of the isle de Aix. this morning when close to the isle de Aix, reconnoitring the french squadron he wrote concisely to his admiral it gave me great joy to find our late opponent the black frigate and her companions the three brigs getting under sail we formed high expectations that the long-wished-for opportunity was at last arrived the palace remained under topsails by the wind to await them at half-past eleven a small point-blank firing commenced on both sides which was severely felt by the enemy the main topsail yard of one of the brigs was cut through and the frigate lost her after-sails the batteries of the isle d'aix opened on the palace and a cannonade continued interrupted on our part only by the necessity we were under to make various tacks to avoid the shoals till one o'clock when our endeavour to gain the wind of the enemy and get between him and the batteries proved successful 
an effectual distance was now chosen a few broadsides were poured in the enemy's fire slackened i ordered ours to cease and directed mr sutherland the master to run the frigate on board with the intention effectually to prevent her retreat the enemy's side thrust our guns back into the ports the whole were then discharged the effect and crash were dreadful their decks were deserted three pistol shots were the unequal return with confidence i say that the frigate would have been lost to france had not the unequal collision torn away our foretopmast jib boom fore and top midsails spritsail yards bumpkin cathead chain plates fore rigging foresail and bower anchor with which last i intended to hook on but all proved insufficient she would have yet been lost to france had not the french admiral seeing his frigate's foreyard gone her rigging ruined and the danger she was in sent two others to her assistance the palace being a wreck we came out with what sail we could set and his majesty's sloop the kingfisher afterwards took us in tow the exploit was none the less valiant in that it was partly a failure the waiting times before and after that cruise were occupied by lord cochrane with brief commencement of a parliamentary life long before this time lord cochrane had resolved on entering the house of commons in order to expose the naval abuses which were then rife and which he had never been deterred by consideration of his own interests from boldly denouncing he stood for huntington in eighteen o five and was defeated through his refusal to vie with his opponent in the art of bribery he contrived however to profit by corruption while he punished it as soon as the election was over he gave ten guineas to each of the constituents who had freely voted for him the consequence of this was his triumphant return at the new election which took place in july eighteen o six when his supporters asked for like payment to that made in the previous instance it was bluntly refused the former gift said lord cochrane was for your disinterested conduct in not taking the bribe of five pounds from the agents of my opponent for me now to pay you would be a violation of my principles a short cruise in the basque roads prevented lord cochrane from occupying in the house of commons the seat thus won and in april eighteen o seven very soon after his return parliament was again dissolved he then resolved to stand for westminster with sir francis burdett for his associate both were returned and lord cochrane held his seat for eleven years in eighteen o seven however he had only time to bring forward two motions respecting sinecures and naval abuses which issued in violent but unproductive discussion when he received orders to join the fleet in the mediterranean as captain of the imperieuse naval employment was grudgingly accorded to him but it was thought wiser to give him work abroad than to suffer his free speech at home this employment was marked by many brilliant deeds which procured for him on his surrendering his command of the imperieuse after eighteen months duration the reproach of having spent more sails stores gunpowder and shot than had been used by any other captain in the service the most brilliant deed of all one of the most brilliant deeds in the whole naval history of england was his well-known exploit in the basque roads on the eleventh twelfth and thirteenth of april eighteen o nine much against his will he was persuaded by lord mulgrave at that time first lord of admiralty to bear the responsibility of attacking and attempting to destroy the french squadron by means of fireships and explosion vessels the project was opposed by lord gambier the admiral of the fleet as being at once hazardous if not desperate and a horrible and anti-christian mode of warfare and consequently he gave no hearty cooperation. on lord cochrane devolved the whole duty of preparing for and executing the project his own words will best tell the story on the eleventh of april he said it blew hard with a high sea as all preparations were complete i did not consider the state of the weather a justifiable impediment to the attack 
so that after nightfall the officers who volunteered to command the fireships were assembled on board the caledonia and supplied with instructions according to the plan previously laid down by myself the imperieuse had proceeded to the edge of the boyard shoal close to which she anchored with an explosion vessel made fast to her stern it being my intention after firing the one of which i was about to take charge to return to her for the other to be employed as circumstances might require at a short distance from the imperieuse were anchored the frigates agli unicorn and palace for the purpose of receiving the crews of the fireships on their return as well as to support the boats of the fleet assembled alongside the caesar to assist the fireships the boats of the fleet were not however for some reason or other made use of at all having myself embarked on board the largest explosion vessel accompanied by lieutenant bissell and a volunteer crew of four men only we led the way to the attack the night was dark and as the wind was fair though blowing hard we soon neared the estimated position of the advanced french ships for it was too dark to discern them judging our distance therefore as well as we could with regard to the time the fuse was calculated to burn the crew of four men entered the gig under the direction of lieutenant bissell whilst i kindled the port fires and then descending into the boat urged the men to pull for their lives which they did with a will though as wind and sea were strong against us without making the expected progress to our consternation the fuses which had been constructed to burn fifteen minutes lasted little more than half that time when the vessel blew up filling the air with shells grenades and rockets whilst the downward and lateral force of the explosion raised a solitary mountain of water from the breaking of which in all directions our little boat narrowly escaped being swamped the explosion vessel did her work the effect constituting one of the grandest artificial spectacles imaginable for a moment the sky was red with the lurid glare arising from the simultaneous ignition of fifteen hundred barrels of powder on this gigantic flash subsiding the air seemed alive with shells grenades rockets and masses of timber the wreck of the shattered vessel the sea was convulsed as by an earthquake rising as has been said in a huge wave on whose crest our boat was lifted like a cork and as suddenly dropped into a vast trough out of which as it closed upon us with the rush of a whirlpool none expected to emerge in a few moments nothing but a heavy rolling sea had to be encountered all having again become silence and darkness readers note quote ends in spite of its bursting too soon the explosion vessel did excellent work the strong boom composed of large spars bound by heavy chains and firmly anchored at various points in its length of more than a mile which was supposed to constitute an impassable barrier between the english ships that were outside and the french ships locked behind it was broken in several parts the enemy's ships were thoroughly disorganized by the sudden and appalling occurrence of the explosion in their alarm and confusion many of them fired into one another and all might have been easily destroyed had the first success of the explosion vessel been properly followed up unfortunately however on returning to the imperieuse lord cochrane found that there had been gross mismanagement of the fireships which according to his plans were to have been dispatched against various sections of the french fleet while it was too confused to protect itself one of them fired at the wrong time and sent in a wrong direction nearly destroyed the imperieuse and caused the wasting of a second explosion vessel which was meant to be held in reserve the others if not as mischievous in their effects were almost as useless of all the fireships upwards of twenty in number said lord cochrane only four reached the enemy's position and not one did any damage the imperieuse lay three miles from the enemy so that one which was near setting fire to her became useless at the outset while several others were kindled a mile and a half to the windward of this 
or four miles and a half from the enemy of the remainder many were at once rendered harmless from being brought to on the wrong tack six passed a mile to windward of the french fleet and one grounded on oleron though the full success of lord cochrane's scheme was thus prevented however the work done by it was considerable as the fireships began to light up the roads he said we could observe the enemy's fleet in great confusion without doubt taking every fireship for an explosion vessel and being deceived as to their distance not only did the french make no effort to divert them from their course but some of their ships cut their cables and were seen drifting away broadside on to the wind and tide whilst others made sail as the only alternative to escape from what they evidently considered certain destruction at daylight on the morning of the twelfth not a spar of the boom was anywhere visible and with the exception of the foudroyant and cassade the whole of the enemy's vessels were helplessly aground the flagship la Oceane, a three-decker drawing the most water lay outermost on the north-west edge of the palace shoal nearest the deep water where she was most exposed to attack whilst all by the fall of the tide were lying on their bilge with their bottoms completely exposed to shot and therefore beyond the possibility of resistance the french fleet had not been destroyed yet it was so paralysed by the shock that its utter defeat seemed easy to lord cochrane to the master of the imperieuse between six o'clock in the morning of the twelfth and one in the afternoon he hoisted signal after signal urging lord gambier who was with the main body of the fleet about fourteen miles off to make an attack failing in all these and growing desperate in his zeal especially as every hour of delay was enabling the french to recover themselves and rendering success less sure he suffered his single frigate to drift towards the enemy i did not venture to make sail wrote lord cochrane in his very modest account of this daring exploit lest the movement might be seen from the flagship and a signal of recall should defeat my purpose of making an attack with the imperieuse my object being to compel the commander-in-chief to send vessels to our assistance we drifted by the wind and tide slowly past the fortifications on isle d'aix but though they fired at us with every gun that could be brought to bear the distance was too great to inflict damage proceeding thus till one thirty p m we then suddenly made sail after the nearest of the enemy's vessels escaping in order to divert our attention from the vessels we were pursuing these having thrown their guns overboard the calcutta a storeship carrying fifty-six guns which were still aground broadside on began firing at us before proceeding further it became therefore necessary to attack her and at one fifty we shortened sail and returned the fire at two the imperieuse came to an anchor in five fathoms and veering to half a cable kept fast the spring firing upon the calcutta with our broadside and at the same time upon the aquilion and ville de varsovie two line of battleships each of seventy-four guns with our forecastle and bow guns both these ships being aground stern on in an opposite direction after some time we had the satisfaction of observing several ships sent to our assistance namely the emerald the unicorn the indefatigable the valiant the revenge the palace and the agli on seeing this the captain and crew of the calcutta abandoned their vessel of which the boats of the imperieuse took possession before the vessels sent to our assistance came down Reader's note, quote, ends. soon after the arrival of the new ships the two other vessels were also forced to surrender most of the ships sent to his assistance returned to lord gambier on the thirteenth lord cochrane seeing that it would be easy for him to do much further mischief made ready for the work on the morrow but from this he was prevented by the inexcusable conduct of lord gambier who having discountenanced the attempt with the fire-ships now not only refused to take part in the victory which his comrade had made possible but also hindered its achievement by him lord cochrane had already overstepped the strict duty of a subordinate though only acting as became an english sailor the fire-ships with which 
he had been ordered to ruin the enemy's fleet, had partly failed through the error of others. It was then, he said, a question with me whether I should disappoint the expectations of my country, be set down as a charlatan by the Admiralty, whose hopes had been raised by my plan, and have my future prospects destroyed, or force an action which some had induced an easy commander-in-chief to believe impracticable. He did force on some fighting, which was altogether disastrous to the enemy and rich in tokens of his unflinching heroism, but it was in violation of repeated orders, dubiously worded, from Lord Gambier, and when, at last, an order was issued in terms too distinct to allow any further evasion, he had no alternative but to abandon the enterprise. He was at once sent back to England to be rewarded with much popular favour and with a knighthood of the Order of the Bath conferred by George the Third but to become the victim of an official persecution which, embittering his whole life, lasted almost to its close. It must be admitted that this persecution was in great measure provoked by Lord Cochrane's own fearless conduct. He was reasonably aggrieved at the effort made by the Admiralty authorities to attribute to Lord Gambier, who had taken no part at all in the achievements in the Basque Roads, all the merit of their success. To use his own caustic but accurate words, the only victory gained by Lord Gambier in Basque Roads was that of bringing his ships to anchor there, whilst the enemy ships were quietly heaving off the banks, on which they had been driven nine miles distant from the fleet. When for this proceeding it was determined to honour Lord Gambier, with the thanks of the Parliament, Lord Cochrane, as a member for Westminster, announced his intention of opposing the motion. As a bribe to silence, he was offered an important command by Lord Mulgrave, and it was proposed that his name should be included in the vote of thanks. The bribe being refused, and the opposition persisted in, Lord Gambier demanded a court-martial in which, as he alleged, to controvert the insinuations thrown out against him by Lord Cochrane. The history of this court-martial, its antecedents and its consequences, furnishes an episode almost unique in the annals of official justice. As a preparation for it, Lord Gambier, in obedience to orders from the Admiralty, supplemented his first account of the victory by another of entirely different tenor, in the first, written on the spot, he had avowed that he could not speak highly enough of Lord Cochrane's vigour and gallantry in approaching the enemy, conduct, he said, which could not be exceeded by any feat of valour hitherto achieved by the British Navy. In the record written four weeks later, and in London, he altogether ignored Lord Cochrane's services and transferred the entire merit to himself. The whole conduct of the court-martial was in keeping with that prelude. No effort was spared in stifling all the evidence on Lord Cochrane's side and in adducing false testimony against him. Logbooks and witnesses alike were tampered with. In support of his scheme for annihilating the whole French fleet, Lord Cochrane produced in court a chart showing the relative position of the various points in A. Rhodes and of the overhanging fort, which was to protect the French ships. This chart, left lying upon the table, was tacitly accepted by the authorities of the Admiralty as a trustworthy document and duly preserved among the official records. But at the time, the court refused to receive it in evidence and adopted instead two falsified charts in which, by the introduction of imaginary shoals and the narrowing of the channel to A roads from two miles to one, the success of the scheme appeared impossible. Although this gross deception was more than suspected, both then and afterwards by Lord Cochrane, his repeated applications to the Admiralty for permission to inspect the documents were steadily refused. It was not till more than fifty years after the period of the court-martial that he was able to prove the scandalous fraud. Reader's note, footnote. Readers of the autobiography of a seaman need not be reminded of the copious and convincing evidence of the way in which he was treated by the court-martial that was adduced by Lord Dundonald in that work. Reader's note, footnote ends. 
The result of the court-martial was, of course, such as from the first had been intended. Lord Gambier was acquitted, and unlimited blame was, by inference, thrown upon Lord Cochrane. The coveted vote of thanks was promptly obtained from the House of Commons, Lord Cochrane's proposal that the minutes of the court-martial be first investigated, being, through ministerial influence, summarily rejected. These proceedings determined the course which men in power were to adopt, and fixed Lord Cochrane's future. It was a future to be made up of cruel disregard, and of revengeful persecution. Soon after the close of the trial, the brave seaman applied to the Admiralty for permission to rejoin his old frigate, the Imperieuse, and accompanied his application with a bold plan of attacking the French fleet in the Scheldt. He received an insulting answer to the effect that, if he would be ready to quit the country in a week, and then to occupy a position subordinate to that which he had formerly held, his services would be accepted. On replying that his great desire to be employed in his profession made him willing to do anything, and that all he wished for was a little longer time for preparation, no further communication was vouchsafed to him. He was quietly superseded in the command of the Imperieuse, and received no other ship. Out of this ill-treatment, however, resulted some benefit to the nation. Lord Cochrane employed much of his forced leisure during the next few years in exposing abuses that were overabundant and in strenuously advocating reform. In Parliament, voting always with his friend Sir Francis Burdett and the Radical Party, he limited his exertions to naval matters, and such as were within his own experience. Herein there was plenty to occupy him, and much of that is now amusing to look back upon. One scandalous grievance led to a memorable episode in his life. The many prizes taken by him in the Mediterranean, which, according to rule, had been sent to the Maltese Admiralty Court for condemnation, had been encumbered with such preposterous charges that, instead of realising anything by his captures, he was made out to be largely in debt to the court. The principal agent of this court was Mr. Jackson, who illegally held office as at the same time marshal and proctor. The consequence was, said Lord Cochrane, that every prize placed in his hands as proctor had to pass through his hands as marshal, whilst as proctor it was further in his power to consult himself as marshal, as often as he pleased, and to any extent he pleased, the amount of self-consultation may be imagined. As proctor he charged for visiting himself, and as marshal he charged for receiving visits from himself. As marshal he was paid for instructing himself, and as proctor he was paid for listening to his own instructions. Ten shillings and tuppence three farthings was the customary charge for an oath to the effect that he had served a munition on himself. Of the sheets composing the bill for services of these sorts presented to him, Lord Cochrane formed a roll which, when unfolded and exhibited in Parliament, stretched from the Speaker's table to the bar of the House. Not content, however, with laughing at the official robberies committed upon him, he determined early in 1811 to proceed to Malta and personally investigate the matter. Reaching Valletta long before he was expected, he immediately presented himself at the courthouse and asked for a copy of the table of fees authorised by the Crown, and which, according to directions, ought to have been placed conspicuously in the public room. The existence of such a document being denied, he proceeded to hunt for it himself, and after a long and careful search found it concealed in an out-of-the-way corner of the building. Having taken possession of it, he was carrying off the prize, which he intended to exhibit in the House of Commons, in token of the extent to which he and others had been defrauded, when he was arrested for contempt of court. He protested that the arrest was illegal, seeing that, as the court had not been sitting, no insult could have been offered to it. The plea was not accepted, and he was sent to jail. No ground for punishment, however, could be found against him, and after refusing to help the authorities out of their embarrassment by going at large on bail, and insisting on a proper exculpation or nothing at all, 
he let himself out of window by means of a rope a gig was waiting for him by which he was enabled to overtake the packet-boat that had quitted malta shortly before to return to london and present the document seized by him to parliament a month before the official report of his escapade reached home readers note footnote this letter from the duke of kent to lord cochrane will help to show that even after the time of his admiralty persecution he was not without friends and admirers in high quarters kensington palace seven july eighteen twelve my dear lord i trust the acquaintance i have the satisfaction to possess with your lordship and the long and intimate friendship subsisting between myself and your brother lieutenant colonel basil cochrane will warrant my intruding upon you for the purpose of seconding the wishes expressed by a young naval protege of mine and i cannot help adding my earnest request that when your distinguished zeal and talents in your profession are again called into action by the government you will kindly oblige me by taking lieutenant edgar under your wing and protection he is a fine young man and i think would not disgrace the wardroom of your lordship's ship i remain with my sincere regard my dear lord yours faithfully edward the right honourable lord cochrane readers note letter ends an imprisonment of very different character occurred after an interval of nearly three years this was in consequence of the famous stock exchange trial the episode last treated of by the earl of dundonald in his autobiography and not quite recounted to the end before death stayed his hand from eighteen o nine to eighteen thirteen lord cochrane was allowed to take no active part in the work of his profession but at the close of the latter year his uncle sir alexander cochrane having been selected to the command of the fleet on the north american station appointed him as his flag captain an appointment resting only with the commander-in-chief and one with which the government could not interfere it was always lord cochrane's belief that the implacable enmity of his foes in the admiralty office determined to prevent by irregular means since no regular course was open to them his return to naval work helped to bring about the cruel persecution by which his whole life was embittered but it must be admitted that the dishonesty of one of his own kinsmen about which a chivalrous sense of honour caused him to be reticent during nearly fifty years conduced to this result the chief agent of the fraud practised upon him was a foreigner named de beringer this man clever and unscrupulous had been associated with mr cochrane johnson an uncle of lord cochrane's in certain stock-jobbing transactions in that or in some other way he became known to lord cochrane and to his other uncle sir alexander cochrane and being a smart chemist and pyrotechnist it was proposed that he should accompany lord cochrane to north america and assist him in the trial of his recently discovered method of attacking forts and fleets in a secret and irresistible manner with that object of course clandestine sir alexander cochrane sought the permission of the admiralty to employ de beringer as a teacher of sharpshooting in which he was a well-known adept this was not granted and near the end of eighteen thirteen sir alexander set sail for halifax leaving lord cochrane to follow in the tonnant in charge of a convoy and in getting the tonnant ready for sea his lordship was busy during january and february eighteen fourteen in the former month de beringer sought him out and earnestly requested that his official appointment being refused he might be taken aboard in a private capacity and allowed to rely upon the success of his work for recompense lord cochrane declined to employ him without some sort of sanction from the admiralty and de beringer left him with the avowed intention of doing his utmost to procure this sanction he was otherwise occupied being in urgent need of money with which to evade the grasp of his numerous creditors he returned to his stock-jobbing pursuits if indeed he had not been engaging in them all along using his proposal for employment under cochrane as a blind or as a secondary resource instead of furthering his efforts to obtain this employment he contrived a plan for causing a sudden rise in the funds and thereby securing a large profit to himself and his accomplices 
on the twentieth of february he presented himself at the ship hotel at dover disguised as a foreigner and calling himself colonel de bourg professing that he brought intelligence from france to the effect that bonaparte had been killed by the cossacks and that the allied armies were in full march toward paris and that a speedy cessation of the war was certain thence he hurried up to london and was traced to have gone on the following morning to lord cochrane's house the ostensible object of that visit was to renew his application for employment on board the tonnant the real object was by means of a trick to get possession of a hat and cloak with which to disguise himself afresh and thus try to elude the pursuit of agents of the stock exchange who would soon seek to punish him for his fraud the disguise was given to him in all innocence and might have been successful had not lord cochrane on finding how grossly he had been deceived volunteered to assist in punishing the culprit leaving the tonnant in which he was about to start from chatham he returned to london and gave full information as to his share in the transaction with the view of furthering the course of justice and clearing himself from all blame that was prevented by as wanton a persecution and as malicious a perverting of the forms of justice and the principles of equity as the annals of english law not often abused even in a much less degree can show the straightforward evidence furnished by him was made the handle to an elaborate machinery of falsehood and perjury for effecting his own ruin the solicitor who had managed the cause of the admiralty at the court-martial on lord gambier and therein proved his skill was entrusted with the ugly work by him an elaborate case for persecution was trumped up and lord cochrane hindered from sailing to north america in the tonnant and hindered from obtaining any other employment in the country's service during four-and-thirty years was on the eighth of june placed in the prisoner's dock at the court of king's bench on a charge of conspiring with his uncle mr cochrane johnson with de berenger and with some other persons to defraud the stock exchange lord ellenborough who presided at the trial delivered a charge which was even more virulent and more marked by political spite than was his wont and the too compliant jury brought in a verdict of guilty lord cochrane vainly sought for a new trial and vainly adduced abundant proof of his innocence the chance of justice that is every englishman's right was denied to him he was sentenced to an hour's detention in the pillory at the entrance of the royal exchange to a year's imprisonment in the king's bench prison and to a fine of a thousand pounds the first part of the sentence was not insisted upon as sir francis burdett lord cochrane's noble-hearted colleague as member for westminster avowed his intention of standing also in the pillory if his friend was subjected to that indignity and of thus encouraging the storm of popular indignation that without any such encouragement would probably have led to consequences which the government already hated by all englishmen who loved their birthright dared not brook but the unworthy vengeance of his prosecutors was amply satisfied in other ways he had already suffered more than most men neglect he said i was accustomed to but when an alleged offence was laid to my charge in which on the honour of a man now on the brink of the grave i had not the slightest participation and from which i never benefited nor thought to benefit one farthing and when this allegation was by political rancour and legal chicanery consummated in an unmerited conviction and an outrageous sentence my heart for the first time sank within me as conscious of a blow the effect of which it has required all my energies to sustain Note, it is needless now to say anything in proof of lord cochrane's innocence of the charge brought against him the world has long since reversed the verdict passed at lord ellenborough's dictation that an officer and a gentleman of lord cochrane's reputation should have demeaned himself by becoming party to the fraud of which he was accused is to say the least improbable that if he had been guilty of that fraud he should not have availed himself of the only benefit that could be derived from it by investing in the stocks when they were low and selling out during the brief time of their artificial value is far more improbable 
that when the fraud was perpetrated and its chief instrument was undiscovered he should have left the tonnant in order to expose him instead of taking him away from england and so almost ensuring the preservation of the secret is utterly impossible his only faults were too great faith in his own innocence and a too chivalrous desire to protect or rather to abstain from injuring his unworthy kinsman i must be distinctly understood it was said by lord broom in his historic sketches of british statesmen to deny the accuracy of the opinion which lord ellenborough appears to have formed in this case and to deeply lament the verdict of guilty which the jury returned after three hours consultation and hesitation if lord cochrane was at all aware of his uncle mr cochrane johnson's proceedings it was the whole extent of his privity to the fact having been one of the counsel engaged in the cause i can speak with some confidence respecting it and i take upon me to assert that lord cochrane's conviction was mainly owing to the extreme repugnance which he felt to giving up his uncle or taking those precautions for his own safety which would have operated against that near relation even when he the real criminal had confessed his guilt by taking flight and the other defendants were brought up for judgment we the counsel could not persuade lord cochrane to shake himself loose from the contamination by abandoning him part of a letter addressed to the earl of dundonald in eighteen fifty nine on the anniversary of his eighty-fourth birthday and shortly after the publication of the first volume of his autobiography of a seaman by the daughter of the man whose wrong-doing had conduced so terribly to his misfortunes may here be fitly quoted you are still active still in health says the writer and you have just given the world a striking proof of the vigour of your mind and intellect many years i cannot wish for you but may you live to finish your book and if it please god may you and i have a peaceful deathbed we have both suffered much mental anguish though in various degrees for yours was indeed the hardest lot that an honourable man can be called on to bear oh my dear cousin let me say once more whilst we are still here how ever since that miserable time i have felt that you suffered for my poor father's fault how agonizing that conviction was how thankful i am that tardy justice was done you may god return you fourfold for your generous though misplaced confidence in him and for all your subsequent forbearance Reader note letter ends another extract from a letter from one out of a multitude of tributes to the earl of dundonald's honourable bearing which were tendered after his death shall close this introductory chapter five years after the trial of lord cochrane wrote sir fitzroy kelly now lord chief baron on the seventeenth of december eighteen sixty i began to study for the bar and very soon became acquainted with and interested in his case and i have thought of it much and long during more than forty years and i am profoundly convinced that had he been defended singly and separately from the others accused or had he at the last moment before judgment was pronounced applied with competent legal advice and assistance for a new trial he would have been unhesitatingly and honourably acquitted we cannot blot out this dark page from our legal and judicial history it is note letter end. end of chapter one recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia